good to see you here at the teaching service. And uh, this month, as you may know, um, one week we're looking at uh, a revival scenario that takes place in, in British history, and then the next week we're looking at some revival principles from Scripture. So those of you that may have been with us last week will know that um, we looked at the history of light in the dark ages, and uh, we looked at some of the great evangelists like Aidan and Cuthbert uh, and the uh, Celtic church in the north and how they evangelized the north of England. And then we also looked at Augustine and how he came from the south of England and how the gospel was established through signs and wonders all those years ago. The next person that we'll be looking at next week is uh, Wycliffe. We're going to look at John Wycliffe, who um, in the 1300s was hundreds of years ahead of the Reformation in his thinking and his preaching. And uh, what Wycliffe did was he made sure that the Bible got translated into English, and then he took portions of the Bible and gave it to his Bible men. They were like evangelists. And they would take portions of scripture. They were trained just up the M1 in Lutterworth. And they would go out up and down the country preaching the gospel. In fact, Wyc Wycliffe and his Bible men, uh, they, they actually pioneered a very strong um, gospel area out just outside in London in Buckinghamshire, which has been a stronghold of the Baptists and the Lollards for many, many years. And so we'll be looking at his impact. It's amazing how these men had impact that didn't just last their generation, but we can even see their impact today. But if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to spend some time in Acts 4 to look at a revival snapshot. Acts chapter 4. We need to get increasingly more familiar with Acts chapter 4 because Acts chapter 4 is like a blueprint for what God does during times of reviving his church. Not that God will do it exactly like he did then. God can do whatever he wants to do whenever he does. But in the book of Acts, there are models and principles for us to look at. And when we ourselves have not experienced revival or any type of revival then it's important for us to go back and, and get a glimpse, a snapshot sometimes when you read the Acts of the Apostles it can seem a million miles away from our own experience but that's why it's there. And so Acts chapter 4 verse 1 and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, this is the apostles, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and a number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means has this man been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel 
that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. A powerful snapshot. God at work in reviving power. Of course, before chapter 4, what has just taken place is that incredible healing of the lame man, 40 years old. Silver and gold have I none, but what I give to you, I give in the name of Jesus. Rise and be healed. And this powerful sign, this powerful wonder and the preaching of the gospel of Peter caused a great turning of the common people to Christ. 5,000 men and, and, and maybe their wives and children on top of that believed in the word that they had heard. And because of this great move of salvation, the disciples found themselves very quickly 
in the uh, Houses of Parliament of the day, facing the leaders of the day. And there's some perspectives in this passage that I'd like us to think on and to highlight because it was important then and it will be important now and also in the future increasingly. And the first thing I want to mention is the absolute essential core of Peter's preaching and teaching and the apostles' preaching and teaching, which was the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection to come. No wonder in chapter 4, verse 1, we hear about the Sadducees. You know the ruling elite in uh, Jerusalem at that time, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the elders. Now, the Sadducees were historically from the aristocratic priesthood of Israel. And during the time of the Greeks, they'd been very friendly to the Greeks. They, they certainly weren't above politics to keep themselves in power. And the Sadducees were often in discussion and argument with the Pharisees over this doctrine of resurrection. In fact, at times in the gospel, Jesus would, uh, would talk about the resurrection when the Pharisees and the Sadducees were questioning him and they would begin arguing amongst themselves. The Sadducees didn't believe that there was a resurrection. They didn't believe that there were angels. They, they were quite anti-supernatural. Uh, they only focused on the first five books, the Pentateuch of the Bible, as being authoritative. And so they heard the authentic note in Peter's preaching and teaching of the resurrection. And because of that, they were greatly annoyed. And we see that the resurrection will come up again and again. Because when the resurrection is preached in power, it saves. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is raised from the dead, you will be saved. So there is power in preaching on the doctrine of the resurrection. And preaching on the doctrine of the resurrection will bring forth signs and wonders following as the Holy Spirit gives. And so preaching on the resurrection actually releases resurrection power. Think about how important resurrection was to even the father of our faith, Abraham. In Romans chapter 4, it talks about Abraham and the fact that we walk in the steps of our father Abraham. And later on, it talks about two aspects of God that Abraham believed. He believed many things about God, but if you were to say to Abraham in Romans chapter 4, what are the two things we need to know about your God? He would say this. He would say he's the God that calls things that are not as though they were. God knows the end from the beginning. And he can speak a thing that's not yet as if it's already happened because in his mind he has. And that should give us great confidence and great faith that God is going to do things that we have not yet seen or not yet experienced. So he's the God, number one, that calls those things that aren't as though they were. And number two, Romans 4 tells us, is that he is the God that brings life to the dead. We know that Sarah's womb was all but dead, and, and as Abraham grew older and older, uh, his, his chances of giving birth also, he, he was dead to giving birth, and yet the great miracle was a resurrection power in the womb of Sarah that brought about Isaac. So Abraham believed in the resurrection. That's why he was prepared to sacrifice Isaac because he believed in the resurrection. Hebrews tells us in the great Hebrews Hall of Fame, in Hebrews 11, it says 
that Abraham was willing to sacrifice Abraham, sorry, Abraham was willing to sacrifice Abraham because Isaac, because he knew that if Isaac was slain, God would have to raise him from the dead. And this is an authentic note of the preaching in the book of Acts, an authentic note that will come in the coming revival. People will increasingly preach and declare resurrection. It won't just be a doctrine, but it will also, as we'll see later, give great confidence because Christians will less and less fear death. And so they were brought to speak and to defend their position. But notice, it was only when there was a move amongst the common people, when I say common people, I mean the normal people, not the Sadducees or the Pharisees. 5,000 souls converted could not be ignored. We find that, generally speaking, up and down our nation and in Europe today, generally speaking, the church is ignored by the ruling elite It's dismissed, it's discarded, we're seen as social heretics, blasts from the past. And uh, it's good that we lobby and it's good that we speak up, but but really what, what, what will happen first before we end up speaking to rulers and kings and making an influence in that thing, what will happen first? Well, there'll be a move amongst the common people. You know, I've noticed sometimes... It almost sounds like preachers and leaders, they want to meet the prime minister, or they want to meet somebody with great money, or they want to meet what they call the movers and shakers, because they feel that if they can meet and influence the movers and shakers, that might change a nation. Well, I believe that people have different callings to different people, and there are people that are called to minister to the rulers, but as far as I'm concerned, I have no interest at all in any way, shape, or form with great and powerful leaders or rich people. Because I do not believe that the future belongs to them. On the contrary, I believe those that are poor, those that are the common people, they're the ones that are going to listen, they're the ones going to hear the gospel. And one of the things that revival often can do is that revival goes to the normal people. And it shortcuts authority and power lines that are already established in nations, the political power or the social power or the media power, revival will often shortcut those things altogether, bypass the presidents and the prime ministers, bypass the authorities, bypass the rich, and go directly to those that are poor, those that are common, those that that don't have these resources. This is why the gospel has a bias to the poor. Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And if a rich person gets saved, that's wonderful, but um, that's a double miracle. Do you know that? If a rich person gets saved, it's a double miracle. And if a rich person actually becomes a proper disciple of the Lord, it's a treble miracle. Because it's about as hard for a rich person to be a true disciple of God as it is for a camel to go through an eye of the needle. So right here, what we see is that the disciples were being ignored. Uh, they, they, they thought they dealt with Jesus, and therefore they thought they dealt with the disciples. They thought they'd cut off the head, and so the rest of the body uh, of Christ, they thought it was, it was all over. And they weren't interested in these disciples, or what they preached, or what they taught, until, until what they preached 
to the normal people began to take effect. You can't ignore 5,000 men that came to Christ. And so, as the Holy Spirit bypassed those that are in ruling and authorities, it also sent the power of God to the common people. Now, we know that later on, actually, a lot of the priests would eventually come to Christ. There would be a move amongst them. And so here they are. They, they are brought into court. And they are challenged in verse 7. And they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And so there was a double question. A question of by what power and in what name. When they're talking about in what name, they're also meaning by what authority. It's amazing when you read the book of Acts, the emphasis that is on the name of Jesus. I mean, we know that it was, it was the name when, when Peter said to that lame man that he didn't have silver and gold. What he did say he had was in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, be healed. And so this name is the authority of Jesus. And we find in this chapter 4, but also in Acts, that really central to all of this is not just the doctrine of the resurrection, but the glory of the name of God. All of this is to do with the glory of his name. The miracles to do with the glory of his name. The authority was by the glory of his name. It wasn't the name of Peter, it wasn't the name of Paul, it was the name of God and its glory that was central to the preaching of the disciples and to the gospel and in their minds. It was the glory of the name. And so Peter responded to this double question of power and authority. You see, this is what the world's leaders are, are, are interested in. They're interested in who's got power and who's got authority. That's the way their mind thinks. Who's got authority? Who's got power? Because in their earthly political mindsets, that's where the power flows. And Peter responds, and listen to this. It says, verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Isn't that interesting? This was the second time that we hear of Peter being filled with the Spirit. He's probably been filled a few times beforehand, but this is the second recorded. And he's filled, in the, he's filled with the Spirit, and he's filled with the Spirit with boldness. And he's going to confront the rulers of Jerusalem in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a theme as well I want you to, to get into your heart that the Holy Spirit in such times fills people with the power to be bold and to confront the powers of this darkness. Think about Jesus himself. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized by John and the Holy Spirit came down upon him like a dove? What was the first thing that Jesus did when the Holy Spirit had come down upon him during the baptism of John. Did he heal somebody? Did he do a miracle? Was it the feeding of the 5,000? Was there a great sermon? No. When Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit at the baptism of John, the first thing that happened is he went out to confront directly the enemy in the wilderness. 
In fact, if you read the Greek in Mark's Gospel, it says that after Jesus was baptized, he was ekbalo, literally thrown out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Thrust, imagine that. There's Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon him, his ministry is beginning, and the first thing he does, doesn't change water into wine, doesn't heal the sick, doesn't forgive somebody of sins. The first thing that happens is the Holy Spirit grasps him and thrusts him into a situation of confrontation. Paul, the Apostle Paul in Acts, when uh, he was filled with the Spirit, when he got into Damascus and the scales fell from his eyes, the second time that he was recorded as being filled with the Spirit in Acts was when he confronted, in Acts 13.9, uh, Elamas, the, the, the uh, false teacher, the Jewish sorcerer. And uh, let me just read this, because it's quite interesting to see what you say under the anointing in Acts. We'll come back to Peter in a second. But the second time that Paul is recorded being filled with the Spirit to speak, in Acts 13, verse 9, listen to this. But Paul, who was also, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and able to see the sun for a time. Immediately darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what was occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It's quite interesting that, isn't it? That we see this emphasis in these times of boldness. Now, this is nothing at all to do with rude Christians. Now, sometimes you meet Christians that are just plain rude. They have no... Um, uh, they, they don't respect authority. We know that Paul respected authority. He respected the high priest later on when he, when he had to, to speak with him. And he said, I didn't know it was the high, high priest. I wouldn't have said that. And so there's honor was honor's due. This isn't talking about rude Christians because this was said was with an anointing. And so Peter stood up before all these great and learned men and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that, in that hour, you don't need to know what you're going to say because God will fill your mouth. I remember a moment, nothing like this, but a moment nevertheless significant in my life when I'd uh, gone to Durham University to do theology and then in my first term I became a Christian and gave my life to the Lord and I was still a very new believer and um, then the following summer I joined with some of my Christian friends and we stayed behind in the college to do a special youth camp for some of the uh, teenagers in the local mining villages. And we'd been out visiting them, doing a youth club once, um, once a week before that. And, I mean, they were a rough lot. I don't mind saying they were a rough lot. I was born in Gateshead myself. I'm a Geordie. But they, they were a rough, tough lot, and, were, and it was all we could do as students just to try and keep the peace, let alone change their lives. And um, we brought them into the, the halls in Durham, and we were having a good week. It was a lot of fun, but 
Myself and my friend, who was, who was discipling me, he's now a canon in the Church of England, uh, we were thinking, well, we've got this week and day by day is going, but none of them are saved. And all this time we've been going visiting them. What is the point in the end if they don't hear the gospel? But we were also in a group of liberal Christians, and there was no way that they even felt there was a need to preach the gospel to them. Well, two days before we ended, uh, we prayed together, and I said, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to call them together before breakfast, about 23, 24 of these young teenagers, I'm just going to tell them the gospel, Mark. And Mark said, well, okay, let's do it, let's do it. So I called a special meeting, I didn't tell the liberal Christians, and we call them all together. And I remember, I didn't know what I was going to say. I just thought, this is the right thing to do. I was still a very young Christian. Never preached, never taught. Not even, really in, a, not even in a little Bible school. A, a Bible study thing. And I remember that they were sitting there. And as I stood up, I begin to speak the gospel. The best way I know how. And it was like something came on me. And something came out of me. And I remember it because... It was the first time I ever preached or spoke. And I remember speaking with a boldness, almost confronting their circumstances and, and, their, and, and their sin. And, and, and it was bold. It, it wasn't just sharing a talk. It was bold. And by the end of it, when we made the altar call, they were in tears, many of them, and some of the boys were as well. Every single one of them made a response to the gospel. Once that took place, all hell broke loose amongst the liberal leaders who, who, who accused me of being Adolf Hitler and using, using, using my position of authority to manipulate. And I was, I was still young enough in the faith to have to be restrained. He would have got a broken nose if the cannon hadn't prevented me. I was still very young. Now, I remember that because it was the first time I ever spoke like that. And there's going to be times where when revival hits where we on the streets and in the place, at the right time, it'll be the Holy Spirit. It won't be something humanly done. But great confidence is going to come back to the church. And isn't it true we need great confidence back in the church? I don't know about your life. I know about my life. I suffer from confidence levels. And the church in Britain and Europe has got a crisis of confidence. But here in this passage we see that when the Holy Spirit comes, he brings appropriate boldness and confidence with anointing. Go ahead of myself, and we see that when they begin to pray later, they're, they're in this situation of oppression. They've been told to be silent and, and threatened with persecution. And when they pray to God, what do they pray for as the answer to persecution and opposition, they pray for more boldness. Isn't that amazing? They pray for more boldness. It, it was the boldness that they wanted. They said, now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants. And can you imagine if you were being threatened? If you were being attacked? Oh, Lord, defend us, help us, shield us. Get us a safe haven, Lord. Deliver us for them. And they were under attack and persecution, and their prayer was, give us more boldness. <laughs> give us more boldness. We're under persecution. Lord, we don't want to fear. We don't want to, get, we don't want to wimp out. We don't want to get soft. We don't want to run away. We want to be stronger, bolder. 
in the gospel. How wonderful, how amazing. That's amazing that's taking place. And, and this boldness was not just based on a filling of the Holy Spirit. It was based in their absolute total belief that Jesus had been raised from the dead. These were eyewitnesses, of course, many of them. They had seen Jesus being raised from the dead. And with that, in view of their certainty of the resurrection, death itself had lost power to coerce fear. Think about that. To have no fear of death. Because you believe so much in the resurrection, that God is in control. And when Peter responded to them and, and, and spoke to them and said, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed, isn't that strange? Somebody had been made well. Someone 40 years old, well known to everybody, had been healed. And the common people saw that it was good, listened to the message of the gospel and got saved. Many people had found God. All that was happening was good. And yet with these good works, they found themselves in court with the authorities having to explain themselves. And Peter, when he, when he talks about, about this and talks about the fact that we are being examined today concerning a good deed... Colin's been speaking a lot about showing people the gospel and that it's easy for us to criticize the government, it's easy for us to speak out. And he's saying, well, we should demonstrate. If we don't like what the government's done in terms of redefining marriage, well, we can complain all we like, but let's show them by building strong marriages, strong families, and, and demonstrate through good deeds. The gospel, isn't it? Jesus said, let them see by your good deeds and they will glorify your Father in heaven. And many people were glorifying the Father in heaven. But don't think that your good deeds are going to be recognized by everyone. On the contrary, this good deed that was taking place caused them to be in a place of persecution. Jesus said, you're going to be persecuted for doing good. And... Um, in responding to them, he said, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, but, but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There again, the glory of his name. Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This is very important. Think of who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the very men that passed sentence on Jesus, basically. Crucify him. Crucify him. For the sake of this nation, the high priest said, this Jesus must die. And yet, isn't that incredible? You crucified him, but God reversed your sentence. You sentenced him to death, and you killed him and crucified him, but God reversed the sentence and raised him from the dead again. This Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders. Again, in a Christ-rejecting society. It's all very personal. When people reject the gospel and people reject truth, they're actually rejecting a person because truth is a person. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And, Paul may, and Peter makes it very plain that this is a personal situation that's going on and that their response to what's happening is a personal response to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then reminds them that there is salvation in no one else. 
for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Now they perceived their boldness and that they were uneducated common men. Again, this is a hallmark of what often takes place in times of revival. It's the normal people that come to the fore. You see, sometimes when we read books on revival situations, uh, often it focuses on the leader of the revival. So when you think of someone like William Booth and the Salvation Army, and you read biographies of William Booth, and William Booth was an incredible man of God, but I tell you what, he'd have been no, no, nowhere without his army. And, and really, the, the hidden story of the Salvation Army's revival was, yes, they had a great leader, but I tell you what, they had some great troops. When you read about what those Salvation Army people would do, where they would go, they, they would go right into the nightclubs of that time, into the pubs of that time, and those men and women were fearless up and down the country. It, it was a move amongst the common people. And you see this again and again. And they recognized that this was an uneducated man. And they were astonished. And then they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So it's interesting, isn't it? It wasn't a while ago where, where Peter had been recognized as being with Jesus and uh, he denied it three times. But something had taken place in his life. Don't think that you always have to be the same as you are. God is at work in our lives. And Peter had a tremendous change in a tremendously short period of time. And now he's being recognized for all the right reasons because they can see that he showed the same characteristics that Jesus did while he ministered on the earth. And uh, when they saw the man was healed, they had nothing to say. God will send such signs and wonders that they will be undeniable. But you know, if you think that signs and wonders will save a nation, you're very wrong. What signs and wonders tend to do is it tends to make people stop sitting on the fence. They'll either come down on one side or the other. In fact, Jesus had some of the strongest words of judgment on the places where some of the greatest miracles take place. So if you think, I remember one, one, people, one couple I knew and at one time, somebody had died, and, and they really believed that if this person had been raised from the dead, and they went down to the coffin, and they prayed, prayed and prayed and prayed all night for the person to be raised from the dead, and their reasoning was that Britain needed this person to be raised from the dead because once this person was raised from the dead, the whole nation would get saved because how could they possibly oppose such a miracle? Well, nothing could be further than the truth. I mean, I don't, I don't want to go to an extreme, but... Could it be sometimes that God sometimes withholds miracles in order that people not be judged? I don't know. It's a crazy thought, though, isn't it? But what will come will come undeniable proofs and undeniable miracles. But these things will not cause everybody to bow down and, and worship God. They didn't with Jesus. But it will cause an increase in separation between those that are of the darkness and those that are of the light. And they were warned no longer to speak in his name. 
And Peter said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. They weren't coming with just a message, they were coming with an experience. This was something they'd seen. This was something that they heard. This was something that had experienced. This, this had a deep, profound impact in their lives. It was something that they could not deny the gospel because if they not denied the gospel, not only were they denying Jesus, but they were now denying themselves. And uh, when they were released, they went. And this is one of the most, most amazing prayers that you can read in the Bible from verse 24 onwards. And you see three elements in this prayer. You see the first part of this prayer is an acknowledgement of God's supreme authority. A lot of what's going on in this passage is authority clashes. By what name and what power do you do this? Well, by our authority we command you no longer to speak in his name. Well, we refuse to speak in his name and and this is the name that has healed the man. And this is the name that is, has, is the name that only has authority to bring salvation to people's souls. And when they begin to pray, they pray, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. You see, this confidence of resurrection, they also had a, conference, a confidence of the sovereignty of God. They actually, you see, they, they were in a win-win situation because they were such believers. I mean, they, they had just witnessed the full evil of uh, the rulers and the Gentiles in putting Jesus to death. Nothing could have been worse, naturally speaking, than to see the Messiah put to death. But they had seen him raised from the dead. The worst situation that one could possibly imagine was turned into the greatest situation that one could possibly imagine. And they knew that God was in control. And they knew that, that even evil was going to be used for ultimate good. I mean, they prayed it. Later on it says, Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate. The Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, all opposing Christ. But then verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What confidence in prayer that whatever was going to take place, good or bad, it was part of God's plan. What confidence to be in this situation where the worse it got, the more they trusted in God's sovereignty. And they reminded themselves of the Psalms. They went back to prayers, back to prayers in the Old Testament of people in the same, similar situations. And, and here, when they, 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 they quote from the Psalms, why did the Gentiles rage? The people plotting in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. What a picture of all the powers of the world raged against the Lord, plotting in vain, setting themselves up, gathering together against the Lord and against it, its anointed. It looks a pretty bad 
situation. But you know what does God do? He laughs. He laughs. In other words, he's not worried by it. He's not concerned by it. He's not shaken by it. And in this prayer, in the midst of revival, they're saying, Lord, let, let, let us be like you. We're reminding ourselves of this passage. We're using this as a prayer line. Look at their threats. And don't grant us deliverance. Don't, don't, don't get us on the nearest train. Don't, don't find us places of refuge. Look at their threats and give us boldness to speak your word. And stretch out your hand with signs and wonders. Again, in the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what was the consequence of being filled with the Holy Spirit? They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What we need more and more in the pulpits of our churches is Holy Spirit boldness. Not rudeness, but an anointed boldness and confidence in the doctrine of the resurrection, in the name and authority of Jesus, and to ask God for boldness and simplicity to reach out to the common people, the normal people. Because what will happen is, when God starts to move his hand, uh, the rulers, they'll be so busy thinking about themselves and their own rages, their own plots in vain, all the stuff they're doing right now, all of their anti-Christian law, all of their thinking, all of that, and God's going to bypass them. Ones and twos and tens and twenties in homes up and down Great Britain are going to get saved, and it's going to multiply to a place where they will no longer be able to ignore. So Acts chapter 4 is, is, is an exciting sample of what God did then. Now, I'm not saying he was going to do it exactly the same, but it's the same God, it's the same gospel, it's the same spirit who gives the same boldness, it's the same body of church praying, it's the same body of church praying for the sick and speaking. And so as we continue to take samples in the book of Acts, what are we doing? We're just simply at a very low level trying to bring adjustment into our thinking. Because if we aren't expecting change, maybe change will never happen. Maybe change will never happen. And change needs to happen in our lives first. And if, if we don't have a vision of God moving in power, how can we ever believe God for God moving in power? How can we ever plan for God moving in power? How can we ever adjust our own spirituality for God moving in power? I said that there's two dangers when you look at the topic of revival. You have people that are constantly looking for the sensational and aren't engaged in the regular work of the Holy Spirit day by day, week by week, faithfulness in the local church. They're not interested. They're looking for the sensational. They're of no use on a day-to-day -day basis. They're not faithful, and they're certainly not going to be used when God does move in power. But then you have the other extreme of people that revival, oh, don't talk to me about revival, not interested in revival. You're just going round and round in circles with false hope. Revival's not going to come. Let's just make sure we do what we do each day. And the problem with that extreme is then there's no expectation. In fact, the expectation is just more of the same. The pursuit of the revival 
of revival is an end in itself because it causes change to take place in our lives. Well, next week, we're going to look back in history. We're going to see a man, Wycliffe, and all his lay preachers, the Bible men, that he sent up and down the country to start a move of God that would actually prepare the ground for the Reformation to come. And we'll take courage and we'll see that some of the principles that were here in, in Acts chapter 4, we'll see some of those principles in the history of Wycliffe and his Bible men in the 1300s. God bless you. Thank you.